Welcome to A Nice Place to Brew with Jason and Kevin, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Alright, just gonna slowly build into this. Welcome to a nice place to brew. I'm Jason. And I'm Kevin. Welcome to episode twenty one. We are uh we got a jam packed show for you here uh here today, guys. Uh before we go into other brews reviewed, um at the time of this recording is uh February, uh middle of February of twenty eighteen. We are getting into the beer competition season. And Kevin, as a certified beer judge, his calendar has filled up very quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. How many how many uh, competitions do you have on the uh, calendar for judging at this point? Uh, well, in the in the uh, short amount uh, of time, I've got three. Uh, but plus, we have uh, some club competitions that are coming up for our, our homebrew club. Right. Um, and we're looking at some more in the summertime too. So, uh, right now on the south. South Chicago land area, uh, three as as of right now. Yeah, and it's only only going to pick up from there. I imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's. In, I've always found it interesting that the two, that I mean, it. To my knowledge, the two biggest homebrew competitions here in the Chicago land area are within two weeks of each other. Right, which is kind of crazy. So I think you see a lot of people that have brewed, you know, the same recipe. And oh yeah, and for sure. It's kind of like, well, okay, I'm just gonna set aside two for this one, two for that one, and then um, see how I do. And then usually that kind of plays into uh, nationals. So. Um, but we'll get into that a little bit later, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk in depth about uh, beer competitions in the third segment of the show. Uh, we've also got a uh, discussion about uh, the Kolsch style in our recipe wizard segment. We're gonna talk about uh, malt, hops, and yeast that that fit nicely in the uh, in the uh, in Kolsch recipes and uh, Kolsch releases. Uh, and of course, we're gonna start off with uh, with other brews reviewed. It is going to be a BJCP. Uh, heavy episode, to say the least, being that we're talking about competitions and one particular style. So Kevin's uh, Kevin's knowledge and background is going to be is going to be very key and is really going to come out today. So Kevin Kevin also I got to give credit to on the onset because Kevin has been battling the flu now for the past two weeks and he was able <laughs> to brave it out and make it out here today. And yeah. I tip my hat to you. Sir. And uh, I'm definitely glad that these uh, beer competitions are not anytime soon because uh, <laughs> you know as you all know when you've been under the weather. You're, uh, it's really hard to, to taste or smell anything. So, uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that I have a while. So, but uh, yeah, it's definitely good to be here and good to be among the living. So, um, wash those hands, people. It's, yeah. it's no joke. And hand it's sanitizer no and all the, all <laughs> that stuff they tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Anyways, let's uh, let's go right into um, other brews reviewed segment number one. Um, we're going to talk uh, separately about uh, two different beers that uh, we separately have uh, have tried and give our thoughts on those. And then we're going to do a live tasting of a bottle that's here on the table. I will give a full intro for that uh, for that bottle in a little bit. I will start off with uh, with my first one. I'd like to talk about a brewery that I'm a big fan of. That brewery is called New Holland Brewing Company. New Holland is has some really, really strong styles all throughout it. It is... It is one of the uh, one of the stronger breweries and and is pretty widely touted. Is that fair? Is that fair to say? Oh, I'd say yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And one of the um, one of the beers that they've um, that's been one of their staples for a very long time is called Dragon's Milk. Dragon's Milk is a barrel aged milk stout, 
and has it's and it's everything that that the style should be it's go ahead and the thing i love about dragon's milk is that it's always on the shelf at my local burkott's and it's not one of those that you have to wait in line for three hours for or anything like that right um it's a good go-to barrel aged stout um year round right right it's i mean it's everything you want to have an imperial stout is there it's it's very sweet it's full-bodied it's just it it does exactly what it what it should do Absolutely. Yeah. My birthday uh, last year, my wife's like, well, what do you want to do for your birthday? And I said, well, I want to make some ribs. You know, so I fired up the smoker and I had a four pack of that uh, oh. dragon's milk. <laughs> and I just sat out there and I listened to music and read books and um, in, enjoyed my four pack of dragon's milk. And that was an entire day right there. You know, I imagine you were feeling no pain oh, after it was, four bottles. It of was that. fantastic. But I mean, it's definitely a sipper. You know, it's not uh, oh, not a session beer whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. I think the main uh, I think the. Uh, the uh, flagship non you know non flavored version clocks in at eleven percent. So I mean that tells the whole story it, right there. It'll definitely warm you up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But um, Dragon's Milk has had a couple of adjunct releases um, uh, in the last uh, couple of months. I came across two different ones over the course of the same weekend, and I'm going to briefly talk about both of them. The first one I had was Dragon's Milk S'mores, and what this brought to brought to the glass was some nice bready notes and just kind of I want to say filled out the flavor a little bit I I was a big fan of it I thought the uh, I thought the I think that bleh, I thought the notes added some very nice character and really made it even more enjoyable than I usually do so I, I gave that a very very high review on uh, on the untapped and the other one I uh, I tried actually the following day was uh, with a salted caramel adjunct and this you know the salted caramel came through very in a very nice way on uh, on that one as well i personally would say that i enjoyed the uh the bready notes that made up the s'more version a little bit more than the salted caramel um but you know the the elements came through very nicely and just really made made everything just enjoyable. And I think the cool thing is when you find a really good stout that has you know a real solid base is that they can riff off of it and you know you're probably going to like it. You know I mean yeah. Um, the the thing is is that it's, I'm I'm a big fan of Dragon's Milk and and again the, I think the thing I like about it is it's kind of like um, one of these barrel aged stouts that it's accessible and most of the time when it when they come out with a new one it's at your local Benny's or your you know it's it's easy to find and it's not right. one of those that right. people they'll just they're not flying off the shelves but people that enjoy them I mean they're there you don't have to you know plan ahead okay this comes out next Thursday so right. I better be there right. at 959 the store opens at 10 I'm gonna be in line I'm gonna fly go straight <laughs> to the shelf and which I'll, I you know don't get me wrong I do that for other beers too but yeah you know yeah. the, the thing is is that this one you know you'll find kegs at like our local bottle shops and things like that last year i was just looking uh last year i had the mexican spice cake variant of that and um it was really good so that's the one with the um toasted chilies uh, cocoa nibs vanilla beans cinnamon that sounds that's, fantastic yeah it's really good and you know the thing is is that what you know what you find this in a bottle you said uh it was on tap when i had it at uh, iron and glass which is my nice. favorite local bottle shop down here so shout that's, out to that's where i had the salted caramel yeah yeah um it, you know and it's like one of those that people aren't flying out to get it 
and it, you can find it, and it's delicious. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe if we should have even mentioned it, but maybe uh, it's going to start selling <laughs> a lot quicker now. So, well, anyways, hats off to you, New Holland. You guys, you guys knocked it out of the park with that one. So, New Holland, um, uh, Dragon's Milk, uh, Salted Caramel, and S'mores. So, for my beer, um, I decided we're going to stick. Uh, we're going to stick in Michigan. And uh, I recently uh, grabbed a couple six-packs, which I do every year. I grabbed a couple six-packs of Bell's Hop Slam. Um, and, and what's funny about Hop Slam anymore is that, uh, I don't know, you know, for people who have kind of been following the whole craft beer scene for a while, uh, that was one of the very first craft beers that uh, that were super, super hoppy. One of these, like, kind of sweet, heavy ABV uh well, I mean, you know, with a name like Hopslam, you know, you could imagine. But when it came out, it was kind of a pioneer. I mean, like, people were just, you got to try this beer. Holy cow. You know, one sip and it'll just, you know, rip your face off. Which by nowadays standards, you know, the game has changed a bit, right? Sure. But I think it's kind of like one of those things where you have to tip your hat to it because it was one of the first big, strong, super hoppy double IPAs that came out. Uh, but I still love it. And, and I'll still go out every year and, and get at least a six-pack of it. Okay. Okay. Uh, usually that's like one of my go-tos for the Super Bowl because it comes out right before the Super Bowl and you can crack that beer. And again, it seems like all the beers that I bring up here on the show are these huge beers. And I, I swear that's not all I drink. <laughs> I, I enjoy session beers and, and things like that. But I guess the ones that really stick out usually are your bigger beers. But um, So this one comes in around 10%, I believe. Um, but the, the thing is, is that by nowadays standards, it's hoppy for sure, uh, but it's smooth too. And I think that's because the, they, they add a lot of honey into the beer too. Do you know offhand how many IBUs are in that? I will look here. Hold on one second. Sure. So we got a 10% ABV on that. I, and and I'll, I'll say on the onset, this is a beer that I have not tried. And to Kevin's point, this is, this is a staple of special release double IPAs. And everything I hear about it, I would enjoy it. I just have not had a chance to try it. No IBUs yeah, that's available? That's weird. That's weird. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll just call it very hoppy. Yeah, it's definitely a very <laughs> you know? hoppy beer. You know? We don't have a number to attach to it. You know, we just, it still paints the picture there. And what's funny is is that it's it's one of those that when you when you hear something like Hop Slam, you picture one of these beers that are just so hoppy yeah. that it's going to tear your mouth apart. But the hops are there, but I feel like it's also a pretty well-balanced beer for what it is, and I, I think there's some sweetness. I think a lot of people um, – the thing is is that people love to hate on this beer, and I don't yeah. understand why because, like I say, it is kind of the one of the original double IPAs with the honey, and I think people, some people think that it's too sweet because maybe through the years some people's tastes have changed a little bit where it's like, yeah. well, when I hear double IPA, yeah. I want to have something that – you know, it's like sucking on a grapefruit. I mean, it's just so <laughs> hoppy and it just, you know, almost uh, with the bitterness up front. But I, I feel like Bell's does a good job of balancing it. And uh, they do kind of these funny promos online where they, uh, they're they about to give away the, the secret hot blend for Hop Slam. And then something happens to their feed where, I don't know if those of you have seen those at, at home, that uh, something happens to their feed. Well, okay, yeah, well, the blend we use for Hop Slam is, and then, you know, the, something's cut where you can't hear what exactly they're putting into the hop slam uh but that's awesome. year after year, i have not seen that but i love that idea yeah yeah and it's like year after year it's consistent and uh 
it is one that they do use the honey in, and I don't know if they fully attenuate the honey out, so you do get the sweet notes in there. But nice uh, to me, I, I think it's a, a great beer. And again, you know, it's one of these where I could split one with a friend or, or have maybe one can to myself, and it's like, okay, that was good, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't finish a six pack in. Well, I mean, I don't think any you know responsible <laughs> adult would finish a six pack in one sitting, but yeah, uh, it, it's it's great for what it is and usually my six pack uh they do tell you to drink it fresh but i feel like a beer that big you can hang on to it for a couple months you know yeah uh it's not one of these like new england ipa styles where you need to drink it oh well it's already gone bad after six hours outside of the brewery and you gotta you know get it down the hatch as quick as possible uh it's one that i've got in my fridge for usually through the the month of february and it's uh just one that's one of my go-tos i love i love it this time of year nice Nice. Uh, to me, double IPAs, and I've made a, a number of those in uh, on my homebrew setup before. We've talked about it on this show. Double IPAs to me is all about balance. And if you can accomplish that, then you've got a really solid beer. And it sounds like Hop Slam hits home on that one. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Nice. For sure. Nice. Well, something I didn't realize until just now, I did not expressly intend for this to be an all-Michigan other brews reviewed but it's starting to shape up that way (laughs) we just went through two different michigan beers and i've got a third one uh (laughs) queued up here for uh for this next one so the next beer i'm going to talk about is from a brewery called saga talk brewing company they have come up on this show before at uh the the place where our uh, brew club meets on a monthly basis one of their staple brews on tap that they have is saga talks milk stout which is one of the better milk stouts that you will find it's, uh, I mean, the ABV is not large. I think it's between 5 and 6%. Um, but, you know, just it's a, it's a sweet, you know, just su- straightforward milk stout. It's everything that it should be. I think it's really, really good. So, anyways, at the most recent meeting I was there, and they had a different beer from Saga Talk on tap, and it is Saga Talk's Peanut Butter Porter. Now, being that this is a beer of a darker variety and uh, porter being one of my go-to styles, I said, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to try it. Also, uh, I'm, I personally am a fan of peanut butter notes. Our friends at Metal Monkey Brewing have a staple beer called Funky Mucker, which has come up many times as well. Love that beer. Yes, and, that, and the peanut butter notes that are in that is one of my favorite parts of that beer. So needless to say, peanut butter porter, I was immediately sold. I'm like, must have. So beer came out, uh, took my first sip, and that the first sip, first sip, peanut butter notes, completely there, completely present, uh, came through in a very nice way. I love the flavor. Um, I would call this a very good but less than great beer. My one criticism of this beer is I thought the body was just too thin. And I thought a fuller body would have balanced out with the flavor notes just so much better than than what it brought and i would say if you're going to drink something uh, if you're going to drink a beer with peanut butter in it right usually when your brain tastes peanut butter or or thinks peanut butter you think about like candy and dessert exactly and and so if if the mouthfeel doesn't follow through with that i mean who wants to you know drink like a or who wants to eat like a really light airy uh, (laughs) reese's reese's bar or something you know it just doesn't it doesn't add up you got to have the kind of backbone to follow up a flavor like that otherwise um you know it's not like a like a light pale ale or something where it can be really kind of light and subtle if you're gonna have peanut butter in there it better right it better bring it on the mouthfeel exactly exactly i would love to see a future release of this beer 
and I'm not sure if I'm the only person who's brought up this uh, this note before, but if they would remake that beer just with a little bit more body to it, I mean, I, I think it'd be a it'd be a five star beer. Now, did you say you had this on tap, or was this uh, out on of tap. a bottle? Okay, because I, I've had their uh, another one a beer that they make is uh, they make a Neapolitan milk stout. That's the one. That's the one I was talking about. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, that that beer's delicious, and they they nail they have it that on, in Chicago Street all the time. Okay, yeah, okay. See, and and I haven't had that on on tap, but I've had it out of the bottle, so I'm wondering, you know, sometimes. Uh, you know in transit kegs can kind of it, it can change the flavor i definitely think beers are always you know different out of a bottle or a can or out of a keg or, that's true you know so i wondered you know if it had something to do with that but i love that neapolitan milk style that's oh delicious. yeah delicious yeah yeah but you know unfortunately uh what would you what would you go with on the here's the teacher again now, <laughs> now what would you go with on the peanut butter would you go c plus B minus. Oh, what do you to think? Attach a, to attach a letter grade. I like that, and we should start doing that with all the uh, beers that we review on the show. Um, I would give it, um, you know, the the body. I think pushes this below a B plus. I, I just go a solid B. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, Saga it, talk peanut butter porter. Outstanding. Yeah. So I guess to give a little preview uh, before the next uh, other brew reviewed, um, I guess this will. In effect, not be a all Michigan other brews reviewed because we have uh, one final uh, beer to review, and it is a Illinois beer, and it's from our good friends at Metal Monkey Brewing. And yeah, they're friends of ours, and you know they in no way uh, sponsor the show, but I feel like we end up talking about these guys <laughs> know, quite a bit. I know. Uh, Listen for good reason. They're great guys. Their beer is great. Why not? True story. True story. So. Uh, as we had kind of alluded to before, uh, when we sat down with them last, we talked about how uh, they had the two-year anniversary coming up. Yep. So as part of the party there, when they uh, held it, we, we were both able to be there and, and kind of help the guys out a little bit. Right. Uh, they also had a bottle release that day. And uh, that's the one I wanted to talk about today. Which is, So it's a barrel-aged monkey fuel, which is a Belgian triple, which has... Um, the base beer won a gold medal at the Indiana Brewers Cup for Belgian Strong Ale, so it's an award-winning beer. And then they went and put it into barrels uh, for California red wine barrels, and this is just me reading off of Untapped here. I don't have this memorized. No, but, it's all good. Uh, so this is just it, it, they put it into California red wine barrels for 18 months, uh, and I really enjoy this beer. And the, and um, but really. I think what's kind of interesting about it, and, and probably my favorite part about the beer was um, that, not that my wife doesn't appreciate good craft beer, but I think it makes part, I think it makes beer a little more accessible to people that mm-hmm. are wine I agree. people, you I know? Agree. And so, and I, and I really like that a lot of breweries are doing more with wine barrels that, that aren't sours. Uh, usually, you know, people will take a lot of wine barrels and, and throw all kinds of bugs in them. And, and I love mm-hmm. a good sour, funky beer, too. Uh-huh. But uh, you don't see a lot of just clean beers coming out of wine barrels. And and I fully support that. I think it's cool. I think it's like a neat flavor. You get some of the oak from the barrel. But it's also, uh, I think we've kind of gotten stuck in a rut with bourbon barrels and rye barrels and things where. Yeah, uh, I could see that. You know, and, and I do love those beers. Anything that's come out of a barrel is, is delicious. But. Uh, I think it's just a new thing that a lot of breweries are doing now that just kind of adds a little extra something to it where um, I actually had this the night of the, the 
the party uh, there on tap, and it was delicious, and I loved it. Actually, funny story about that. So <laughs> I was selling tickets, and um, a, f- a friend of mine next to me accidentally spilt his all over the table. Oh, and no. I was like, oh, no, pick everything up. You know, and it was like, <laughs> oh, get some, get some paper towels. You know, you had that moment. And I was like, hey, this beer smells great. What is this beer? You know, what did you just spill all over the table? That was your introduction to it. It yeah, was being spilled it, on. Yeah, exactly. I got it spilled all over me. And so I was like, you know, this beer smells fantastic. It's like, it's that barrel-aged triple. I just dumped it everywhere. And I was like, well, I'm going to go get me a glass of that. That smells delicious, you know. And sure enough, it was awesome. So, But uh, last night, I cracked open the bottle of the barrel-aged monkey fuel there that they had that they had. Uh, had for sale at the brewery and i poured it for my wife and you should have seen her eyes light up because she's a wine person okay as well as a beer person you know i've made her a beer person through the years you know? yeah um and just to see somebody who it's like oh two of my two great tastes that taste great together you know it's kind of like <laughs> chocolate and peanut butter it's just wine and beer here it is and uh just the the look on her face it was like oh yeah i knew you'd love that one you know and it's like so it's like i loved it but i knew that she would love it too so um, and again, I like that when when breweries put beers into, uh, they use different adjuncts and, and different things that can get people fired up that yeah. maybe wouldn't have like enjoyed the base beer as much. You know, uh, Belgian beers are kind of polarizing. People either love the Belgian style or because it, it's it's kind of an ester heavy uh, beer where some of the some of the, the the flavors of Belgian people say, oh I don't like those Belgian beers it's too much yeah. too much banana or too much clove or too much too much this too much that they're a very bold flavor right but then they take that age it for a year and a half in these wine barrels and it just comes out as this like totally new thing and yeah. so um, it was it's kind of neat and I and I like where I like where their head was at with that when they designed that recipe and when they decided to put that in there and I think it makes craft more accessible i agree i agree my introduction to that that style that that we're describing here was from pollyanna brewing company which is just a couple miles from here and uh, it was i want to say two or three years ago they did a belgian quad that they aged in in red wine barrels and it was everything that you're describing you know it just it leveled out that flavor just added some really nice notes to it and i like the comment that you made about kind of bridging the two worlds between you know, people that like wine and people that like craft beer, because there's definitely something in both, you know, both those examples from Pollyanna and Metal Monkey that, you know, accomplishes that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, how do you feel about wine? On I a scale hate of one? wine. You hate wine. And okay. Wh- here's what's funny. And okay, BJCP judge, you know, I, I consider myself when I'm not, you know, on my deathbed ill, I consider myself to have a pretty refined palate. I've had some training and, sure. you know, I know how to identify <laughs> things. But what is funny is I've had everything from the cheapest most you know rot gut wine that you can you know that you can buy at any gas station everywhere up to like the some really expensive stuff because uh again you know my wife loves loves wine so i'll take her to different wine tastings and we'll go to wine stores and and i'll always take a sip it's like my kids i tell them you know hey you may not you may think you don't like that food but you're gonna take a no thank you bite (laughs) and so i'll take a no thank you drink 
And I will, and I'll take a no thank you drink, and I'll say, well, okay, ooh, and I don't care. A no thank you drink. I'll take a no thank you drink. I think you're about to land on Urban Dictionary on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. And it does not matter from the cheapest wine up until, you know, the stuff that everybody's raving about. Well, we're, we can't pour too many tastes of this, but since you guys seem to be real wine people, I'll, I'll take this out of the back here and pour you guys a little sample of this one. And I'll take a, I'll take a taste, and I do this, like, little, uh, like, shiver dance from the 50s where you're like <laughs> you know it's kind of like uh like i like i there's uh drano in it or something in it but i've i've read that some people their palate is just uh it's kind of like the same thing with cilantro like just some people when they process it there's just a chemical and i've heard that it's the tannins in in wine mm-hmm. uh that for some reason any wine that I've had, minus like the only wine that I can tolerate is uh, really sweet wine, like a port, or like a Gerstweimer. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I'm okay. not a wine person, but okay. uh, but literally any wine, I I can't stand it. But uh, oddly enough, I like beer that's been aged in, in wine barrels because whatever must be in the wine that I can't tolerate isn't in the beer. It just picks up the grape flavor. So yeah, okay. So, no, I know. I know that's weird. No, no. Honestly, but you found something about wine that you enjoy just from, you know, having, you know, having the barrel, um, uh, having beer aged in that same barrel. Yeah. And so. I and I think that's, you know, wine is very cool and it's it's neat. Yeah. And, I, and I appreciate people that can get into the whole, you know, uh, uh, tasting profiles of it and, yeah. and pairings. But I feel like I get a lot of that with craft beer yeah. that uh, maybe that I can't. Maybe that's why I got into craft beer like I did, because I I just could never appreciate wine. But I can appreciate a good craft beer. I don't know. I don't know where it came from, but <laughs> uh, I just I don't do wine. Good How about deal. you? What's your take on wine? I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, n- now I um, I've made one batch of homemade wine. And uh, it was put in a bottle uh, on the Fourth of July of this past year. Um, I've yeah, I've always you know I, I've wine is a often go to you know drink for me. I, I admit though that I'm not one of those people with such a refined palate that I recognize all the different flavors. I mean, to me, you know, the the, the wide price variance in wine uh, doesn't totally represent or even really at all represent what's a good wine and what's you know what's a bad wine you know, i've had really really good wine for under ten dollars really good i feel like some beer is like that as well too i think you could make a case for it okay i think a lot of these like whales you know that that people go out and chase and and pay big bucks for it's like you know i've I, i've been to some I've been to some bottle shares uh, with other craft beer aficionados where something's getting poured where it's like, oh, my gosh. And I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, <laughs> where it's like, oh, my gosh, we had four people throw in on this bottle. And, uh, you know, they had to they had to save three months salary to to pay for this one bottle of beer. Oh, and, my God. You know, that, that kind of, oh. I'm, I'm just being silly. But, yeah. you know, like that kind of stuff where it's like, well, this is pretty good but i had another bottle that was like almost as good you know and it's like uh so yeah i definitely don't think the price is always indicate you know is is an indicator of of quality sometimes it's a supply and demand thing too but i agree yeah i don't know if that makes me a bum that i that i don't (laughs) recognize those differences as much as the other people but hey I just, you know, to me, it's just it's just enjoyable to sit around and sip. Yeah, there you go. That's that's, 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 hey, that's where a, I'm at. You're a frugal guy, you know, and uh, yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I always say, you know, a lot of times when I'm in a, a bar that doesn't carry a lot of craft beer, 
usually my go-to is the the two dollar PBR talls, you know, and that's <laughs> that's just a, a beer that I I just one of my go-tos and uh, it's good ice cold, pairs up nice with a burger, can't go wrong. Um, okay, I'll give know? I'll give you that pairing with a burger. Yeah, that's true. And and it's like you know a lot of your your dive bars and in small town places aren't going to have like a a bell's too hearted on tap or right. anything like that. And it's like well, let's see here. You know if I don't want to have a Jack and Coke or something, I'll be like hey, yeah, I'll grab a I'll grab a tall PBR. You know I like I tell people I'm a I'm a I'm a beer nerd, but I'm not a beer snob. Yeah, big difference between the two. There you go. That is the second time over the last three shows that uh, Paps Blue Ribbon has made an appearance on the show. <laughs> if you look at episode 19, we had a conversation about the most expensive beers uh, in the world, and Paps Blue Ribbon is on the list. They're not one of the, uh, they're not at the top of the list, but they do have a release in China that's got, you know, a very, very nice looking bottle, and they sell it for a, I can't even remember, some, you know, just ungodly amount of money. But, yes, so <laughs> Pat's, Pat's Blue Ribbon, you have not been forgotten here on A Nice Place to Brew. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to go into the last one. We have a uh, tasting that we're going to do. And I got to say, I got to, on the onset, say thank you to my dad for this one. Because uh, my, nice. my dad just, uh, my dad and my mom just made a uh, short little trip throughout the uh, southeast part of the United States. And they happened to come across some limited release beers, and they threw some my way. So outstanding! Thank you very much, guys. Good looking out. Yeah, yeah. This and uh, one of the um, one of the uh, bottles that came back is uh, here in my hand right now. This is from a brewery called Full Steam Brewery, out of I'm going to get this. I know the state. I'm looking for the city here. Give me a second. Durham, North Carolina. Full st- and the uh, the beer that, that's in hand here is called Furington Seasonal India Tea Ale, which is interesting. So now certainly India Pale Ale is a beer that we see everywhere. India Tea Ale okay. is is definitely unique. I'm gonna open this up and pour and pour, and then I'm gonna open up untapped, and I will explain a little bit more about this. And I admit on the onset that I'm kind of starting from scratch here. I didn't do a whole lot of research leading up to this so we're going to kind of get to get to know this as uh as we go along there's nothing wrong with going in blind yeah Yeah. there you go and man we got a lot of carbonation here so this (laughs) it it is definitely a an effervescent very uh heavy frothy pour yeah she's a little angry so i am going really slow here (laughs) so the things we can comment on about this beer uh Again, being other under the weather, and I, I can't really speak too much to the flavor because I'm I'm a little stuffed up today. But uh, we've this the head on this beer is crazy. It's a real, real light, airy, bright white head. It's um, kind of a, a hazy golden color and uh, very light, almost pilsner light. Yeah, yeah, and that's what it kind of puts you in the mind of is um, usually your your IPAs and. Um, I, although, you know, again, this has changed more recently, but mm-hmm. uh, most of your classic IPAs are are clear. Uh, this one's definitely got some haze to it, but I don't know if that's intentional or whatever, or if that's the tea in there. or Could be. Uh, but they say tea's good for a cold, so I'm really there really you looking go. forward See, to I'm this. looking out for you, Kevin. Yeah, good that's looking out. <laughs> Much appreciated. Are you, I, and uh, back to flavors that we like or, or dislike, I am a huge fan of tea. 
How are you on the tea? I love tea. Okay, I do all right, love we're tea. on the same that's, page. That's what now. I'm into. Yeah. So when I saw that on the label, this immediately called out to me. I'm like, okay, this might be something something I could enjoy. So here's the description on uh, on Untapped. Uh, the, this India tea, tea ale is a refreshing twist on the Session IPA. Brewed with local malts, this Furington seasonal has the flavors and aromas of an IPA, but with a toned-down ABV perfect for the South's hotter months. Citrusy hops blend with Charleston Tea Plantation's Governor Gray Tea and bright lemon peels, refreshing, sessionable, and distinctly Southern. Okay, here's a first sip here. Okay, definitely getting the bitter notes. Yeah, and, and it's it's got the I, uh, it's got the IPA bitterness kick to it. Yes, um, I do love the mouthfeel on this beer, though. It is very unique. I you know I, I could see sitting on a porch on a hot day, um, and and having a couple of these ice cold, and I mean I think it's a pretty refreshing beer. That's definitely the. Um, I think that's definitely what they're going for, is you know to have this is an ideal beer to be sitting outside on a hot summer day and be refreshing. And I agree. I think this accomplishes just that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, and I think that a lot of breweries would probably shy away from using tea in beer. That's not one you hear of a lot, because tea inherently has a lot of uh, astringency and, and tannins in it, and. Um, in fact, you know, I think we've mentioned before when people talk about astringency in beer, they always will, when you talk about that as a descriptor, you say, well, um, it's kind of like sucking on a tea bag, <laughs> you know, like, and that's one thing that you can use to, to describe that flavor to someone because tea has a little bit of that, but I'm not getting that off of this. I'm not. And tell me what you think about this. I do feel like the tea flavor does get lost in this. A little bit, but I think that's just kind of the nature of just how it's put together. I mean, I think hop notes any day of the week is is going to drown out any subtle tea flavor, which is kind of what what tea comes out to. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, I I definitely get more of the the bitterness from the hops and yeah, uh, some citrus notes in there. Be, but uh, poor tea just can't keep up with that much with that much hops that's you know? that's what i'm saying yeah. um but it is i mean it's it's if it's there it's faint again you know i wouldn't mind uh trying this if i were 100 percent healthy and not stuffed <laughs> up but um I, I like i say it's uh mouthfeel wise it's 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 real like light and airy effervescent in your mouth and yeah um you know i again i would be this would be good for some some sitting and, and rocking on the front porch swing you know yeah there you go all right. Uh, yeah, good beer. Well, Full Steam Brewery out of Durham, North Carolina. Well done. Uh, it's Furington Seasonal India Tea Ale. All right. That's going to close off segment number one. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back with um, a recipe wizard. We're going to talk about Kolsch. So stick with us. You know, interestingly enough, I think this beer, this uh, Furington Seasonal India Tea Ale, is a great lead-in to the uh, Kolsch discussion. Because I, uh, I think there's a lot of common ground this beer has, uh, has with Kolsch. Yeah, I would definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. No, I think that's going to make, I think that'll make for a good, good lead-in with it. Anyways, welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. I'm Kevin. 
And we're going to talk about, we're heading to segment number two, we're to, uh, the recipe wizard, and we're going to talk about Kolsch. And I got to give some background on, uh, on the, uh, how this uh, topic came to be. And I admit I'm being a little bit selfish in this uh, discussion. I was recently challenged to, uh, to make a Kolsch along with two other fellow brewers and have those beers tasted side by side. And you've been challenged to a Kolschoff. I have been challenged to a Kolschoff. And <laughs> number one, I am determined to win. And second of all, I, th- this is a beer that I have never made before and is by no means a go-to style for me. I, I certainly have some familiarity with it, but I have a lot to learn on, uh, on this style. And I've, uh, I've looked up a number of things and I, uh, I want to, I want to kind of, uh, go over some of the things that we've, uh, that we've found and kind of fill out the, um, uh, the description of, uh, of Kolsch, what, uh, what makes up the recipes and, what makes it distinct? Okay. Uh, so I think for for most uh, of your Kolsch beers, um, I think that well, since they originated in Germany, uh, typically you you know it's one of those kind of German top crop lager, real you know uh, crisp and and not overly hoppy type of beers. Right. Um, you're looking at like a good. Usually, most cultures are, are a session strength, and but of course, you know any style that was originated somewhere else, and and here in America, I'm sure you would find a lot of local breweries that like to you know, you know, hop the bejesus out of it. But you know, <laughs> your, your your classic style Colch doesn't have a lot of of hop of hop right, character. Right. I feel like uh, I mean, it, it's a. Um, I think a lot of golden ales that you come across. I think I think the a classic Kolsch, you know, is kind of the you know one of the influencer beers behind uh, behind those. I mean, cause there's a lot of uh, common characters in, in both of those. Oh, absolutely. Just to kind of fill this out a little bit, um, on the ABV spectrum, Kolsch is very low, uh, according to the uh, BJCP style guidelines. The uh, ABV is between four point four and five point two percent. So you're within session um, session values with that. Absolutely, and and I think a good Kolsch, and again, you know, when we were talking about the wine barrel beers, getting people on board with craft beer, mm-hmm. I think a good Kolsch is one of those gateway gateway beers, you know, kind of like the same idea as like a Blondale. Like if somebody were to come into a brewery and, and say, all right, what do you have that's kind of like, you know, the beer that, you know, my... I've drank and my grandpa drank and his you know and his exactly. dad drank. Yeah, I mean this is like your your fizzy yellow, uh, and it doesn't have to be. I mean I think a lot of people get down on macro lagers and say that they're like all flavorless and things like that. But I mean this is like your uh, classic fizzy yellow lager from Germany. You know, right, right. It would be it would be a gradual step from somebody like like you were saying to to go from your 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 classic you know mass produced lager to you know something more inventive or something you know d- stepping in the craft direction. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's uh, another uh, another topic: uh, color. Back to what we were saying about the golden ale links and the in the mass produced lagers. This is very light on the uh, on the spectrum. As the uh, India TAL was, this is um, this is between three and five SRM on the spectrum, so very very light. Uh, yeah, it's like one of those. It's like when people, uh, when you picture, okay, what 
what do you picture a glass of beer looks like? This is like your classic golden, golden frothy head glass of beer. Yep. You know, uh, kind of like the emoji on the iPhone or whatever. When you say beer and you hit that little emoji, um, that picture is like a Kolsch. You know, yes. when, when you when you put that in there, you know, some of us that are are big craft fans think, well, that's you know, that's not always what beer looks like. You know, when I <laughs> when I give that emoji to people, but you know, whatever. That's what most people picture, and so that's your classic golden pale kind of straw yellow, super clear, right? Um, Whitehead, kind of like. Uh, like Duff beer on the Simpsons, you know, right. like that's, that's the classic look of a beer. Right. So getting into the flavor notes, um, let's talk about malts first. Uh, your, the overall feel is not going to be very malt forward. Uh, being that it's on the lower end of the ABV spectrum spectrum, you would not expect a large grain bill out of this. You'd probably have, you know, a very light base malt making up the vast majority of the grain bill. And I think a lot of the flavor of the malts in, in Kolsch is, is uh, most of the time they're Pilsner-based. So you have that kind of a, a real crisp, kind of that 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 crisp, bready, crackery kind of right, note. Right, right. Um, sometimes it can, some people attenuate them a little sweet where uh, you'll end up with kind of like a little bit of that honey finish on there. But uh, for the most part, it's uh, just a crisp, easy-drinking uh pairs well with with pretty much any kind of food or whatever um down the hatch all afternoon type of beer yeah yeah um other things about the malt profile according to the bjcp uh, guidelines it does list here up to 20 percent wheat malt may be used but this is quite rare in authentic versions now that that would that would certainly remain consistent with the overall makeup of a Kolsch, you know, being the, the lighter color, lighter mouthfeel, lighter on the, on the grain bill. I think, I think wheat is, is a very sensible additive to the, uh, to the recipe at that point. Yeah. And, um, you know, you do run the risk of kind of, uh, losing a little bit of your clarity when you add the wheat in there because we can sometimes, you know, impart a little bit of a haze. Possibly. Some people throw those in there for, for more of the mouthfeel. Um, but I, I would think that for the most part, I, I think when people are designing Kolsch recipes, it's kind of a just uh, easy does it with, with extras, you know. I think a lot of, like I'm looking at the, uh, uh, I have Gordon Strong's book on my phone, and, and I'm not going to give away his recipe because, you know, go out and buy his book. I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, I'm not going to uh, give that all away. But it's most of the, for those of you who don't know, he's the, the grandmaster beer judge and, and the legendary beer judge and has written several books about brewing. And, nice. And, and uh, so, I mean, he, he knows his stuff, you know. Um, but his recipe and I'm looking at it here is just mostly Pilsner and then just a few little extras that kind of add in a little bit of that. Oh, okay. Well, what's that? I think you probably could pull off a really nice Kolsch with just Pilsner malt. Um, I would think so. But I mean, he adds a little bit of German Vienna and uh, Belgian Caribbean, uh, just kind of to add some of that, some of that. Oh, okay. What's that? Is there a little bit of extra sweetness in there on the on the finish and a little head retention? Yeah, a little bit of extra head retention and that sort of thing. But I think for the most, for the most part, it's kind of a, a real delicate, uh, just a clean, crisp beer. You know, yeah. that's that's what people are looking for with a Kolsch. Yeah, I want to talk about the hops for a second. Being that the um, that the malt bill is on the lower end with this. 
you would think that um, you the oh man <laughs> you would think uh, most likely a big part of the overall feel of a Kolsch beer is going to come from the hops and the guidelines do specify that the hops used commonly throughout these, this beer are traditional German hops, and they list a couple of these. For example, Hollertau, Tednang, Spalt, or Hirschbrucker. And uh, again, with with the lighter grain bill, the hops that you select are definitely going to come through. Right, the, and, and I, I would say again, you know, you I'm sure you could find. Uh, local breweries that have kind of played with that a little bit, uh, but yeah, your Holler Tower and, and most of your uh, most of your Noble Hop type of varieties, you know, you're looking for something that's got kind of that kind of that floral, earthy kind of. You don't want anything real big and bold and upfront. Right. I would say like uh, United, like local. Well, not local necessarily, but United States hops. Uh, you'd be looking at maybe like some Liberty or or uh, some Crystal hops or something like that that aren't just in your face, but kind of more uh, blends well with the with the that crisp Pilsner. Because the whole idea of a Kolsch is that it's a real crisp style where you're just like ah, refreshing, you know. Right. Just mowed the lawn. Just got off of a hard day's work, you know, kick off the work boots and oh, I'm going to go grab an ice cold beer out of the fridge. You well know? said. That well sort said. of thing. The IBU uh, scale for this beer is between 18 and 30, which is relative. I mean, which is not high on the spectrum. I mean, as by way of comparison, your uh, your India pale ales can can range between I'll say 40 on the low end and on the high end, well over 100. So I, and I don't have those firm numbers in front of me, but this is definitely a step down from the uh, the hop varieties that you would uh, that you would find on any IPA style. Yeah, and again, looking at the little sample recipe that I pulled up, uh, most of the the percentages uh, of alpha acid on these hops are like three point five percent, four point three on the Hollow Tower, yeah, four point five on Liberty. Um, I, I mean, you don't want anything like way into the double digits unless that's what you're trying to do. I mean, if you're trying to make a hoppy Kolsch, I think it may style wise go into a different area. But that's what um, I was you thinking. Know, if you're yeah. making something to drink that you like and you wanted to try something different, you know, by all means. But um, I would think for your classic style, you'd want to stick with kind of earthy uh, herbal kind of notes more than, you know, your big like i don't know if anybody would want to go and dump like a a few ounces of like galaxy into a colch you know yeah now that being the case and that, that brought up a question i wanted to ask what would a hoppy colch be in what category would that then kind of morph into you know it's it's one of those that um i mean conceptually you could say that well maybe would that go into like a pale ale kind of variety Usually when I tell people, if and we're going to get into these competitions here that are going on locally, your best bet is to taste the beer and decide from there. That's really your, your best bet. And so, okay, if, if someone poured this for me, you know, your buddy comes from your buddy comes from, from the bar there at a brewery and says, hey, I got you a beer. And so you, you, take a, you take a smell of it, you take a little taste, and you say, oh, wow, this is an interesting beer. What is it? Is this an, is this an IPA? What, what do you got here, you know? That's the kind of way that you should evaluate your own beer before you put it into competitions because... Good point. I mean, how many times have we made something, you know, on the homebrew level where you're like, oh, well, I'm going to make a, a 
uh, an imperial brown ale today and it kind of comes off as something totally different or you know that sort of thing where it doesn't always come off the way you intended it to yeah you, you can't get married to one thing or the other but, yeah you know if you I definitely a, want to talk more about this in the third segment for yeah sure. for sure you know and so i mean if you have a colch that you've overhopped uh, is it still a Kolsch? Well, I don't know. Tell your friends it's a Kolsch. But, you know, I'm saying if you're going to enter it into a competition, you may want to kind of evaluate it a little different. But Good it's point. all kind of based on taste, right? Yeah. So we can close this off and talk about uh, fermentation. Um, let's see. The, the um, As far as yeast, the... The guidelines do spe- uh, do direct um, and recommend uh, an attenuative clean ale yeast. So keeping with kind of the uh, kind of the clean overall mouthfeel and flavor that uh, that we've talked about throughout the uh, the segment, you know, the same is going to be true for the uh, for the yeast. Um, the fermentation uh, fermentation temperature is is warm on the overall scale. Uh, they recommend just a um, kind of a room temperature uh, fermentation. And then uh, cold crash after fermentation is complete, and then just uh, and then serve while it's young. Now, and I think that's an important point to uh, to talk about um, with this particular style, um, being that this is a nothing fancy, very straightforward, very just kind of bread and butter type beer. Any imperfection in this beer is going to show up in a big way and show up quickly. Absolutely, yeah. Now, and that's one of the things that excites me about this this challenge that I've that I've been given is that's exactly what's going to come forth. Is anything I do wrong when I present this is going to be there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it definitely. It uh, a lot of times, uh, some people and in, in, in brewers, I guess, would would say that uh, more of your big tropical American hops. The, one it can, of the it can hide good, anything. Yeah, one of the things that they're good for, you know, like your galaxy and mosaic hops and things like that, is that it can. Oh, or I may have I may have fermented this a tad too hot, so I'm just going to hop it, and then nobody will notice. But this one, I mean, it's like uh, t- strips everything down to the to the basics, and as far as if there's a, which which I think it's good to 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 brew a subtle beer, you know, for home brewers out there that yeah. you know, because it really shows. If there's like a little something in your process that's off, it's going to come across on a Kolsch or a Blondale where maybe if you had, you know, this big hoppy double IPA, the the hops might have covered that, you know. Exactly. Yeah, well said. And I actually really love the yeast uh, that most people generally use with Kolsch. It's uh, the WLP uh, 029 from White Labs. It's a Kolsch ale, uh, German ale Kolsch yeast. That's the one that that's one of my go tos, and the reason why I like that so much is that is that it's because an, you've made a Kolsch before, or you made something else with it. Well, I've made several beers with that with that yeast before, and and um, it's it's good because it's the lager, it's the lager quality with the ale temperatures. So those of us at the homebrew level that want to get away with, uh, that want to get away with brewing beers that are German. Uh, kind of flavor that 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 have that kind of snappy clean finish that a lot of your lagers get but you don't have the the means to to put your beer into lagering or or the space or um and i know that nowadays there's there's more uh people out there that are saying that you can do warmer lagers and fast lagers yeah and people that that have that have that have tried to do that but I, i think it's like one of those that'll give you that kind of finish uh, one of my favorite beers I make is a, an Oktoberfest that 
um, it's it's uh, made with the the Kolsch yeast, so it's like it doesn't have to be made months in advance and then sit in a chest freezer for for months and months and months. And I find that it's probably side by side comparable to any of your lager strains, you know, from from what I've experienced. That that's a great point, and, and it's a great comparison too to some of the uh, some of the classic lagers. And to your point, uh, I mean, lagering beer is a whole different animal on a homebrew scale than you know traditional you know ale making. It's definitely it's a it's a big step up in the complexity because you know you know cold temperature fermentation, diacetyl rests. And just you know, a lot of other you know time you know investments. There's a there's a lot more to to do on that front than there is when you when you make a regular ale. Absolutely, and yeah. I would say like in in my view, it's almost like one of those like life hack yeasts. You know, it's like uh, one of these where if you use the exact same grain bill, uh, say for like a Schwarz beer or something like that, that you would have done for like your your traditional German lager, mm-hmm. and then you use the Kolsch ale yeast and you keep it you know 68. 70 degrees and uh let it age for a while i i think it's a very similar you know it's a very similar product and it doesn't require as much special equipment for a home brewer that keep it simple yeah exactly exactly but it's got that crisp finish that people are looking for and so that's like one of those little tricks of the trade you know go out and get you some wlp 029 yeah and you can do things that taste like lagers without having the space or the commitment of lagers great point so, BJCP certified judge Kevin, <laughs> have you in your tenure so far as a beer judge judged a Kolsch category? You know, that's one I haven't uh, had an opportunity to do, and uh, it, it's kind of an ongoing joke uh, through a lot of different. You know, a lot of the judges when you go to these different competitions, that there's usually a thing that it, there's a series of check boxes that'll say, "Mark the styles that you absolutely won't do." And wow, I never, t- I never knew about that. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's usually the system will keep you from judging in your own category, right? You know. Oh. So I mean, usually that there's sense. so that yeah. so you definitely want to avoid that, obviously. You know, because yeah. there's there's a bias there. But um, I never check those boxes because there are people. You know, I mean, think about like your palate. You know, if you can't stand certain beers, you you you're it wouldn't be fair to to have people submit. Uh, and pay money to have their beers evaluated by somebody who hates the style, right? Yeah, that's a good point. But me, I I love all beer. <laughs> okay, that's one of the things that I, I really I'm not a very picky. Uh, I, I mean, I'm always into trying new styles, and there's no beer out there where I'm like, ugh, I cannot handle that style. So there there's a joke that says, oh well, all of us ended up at this table because we didn't check off any of the boxes. <laughs> Be, you know, and, and so a lot of times what you'll end up with is, um, and, and I don't mind it, but a lot of times what you'll end up with is if you didn't check off any boxes, they put a lot of those judges at the spice and vegetable beer category and say, the yeah. wood and smoke category. And uh, not that any of those are bad styles. And, and again, but, you know, on a homebrew level, people will take and get a little get a little crazy with the spice and vegetable beer it's like right. well i uh you know i just went to like the the mccormick spice rack there in the grocery store and i i took like 10 different bottles off of there and just dumped it all into my beer in the last <laughs> 5 minutes and this is a coriander chili pepper uh blah 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 sage blah 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 ale you know and so you know we'll be sitting there like whoa this is something else you know um 
But you will get an occasional gym yeah. in, in a flight up here like that, too. But I have a Kolsch lot. Kolsch is not one I've gotten to, and I think that's because, well, maybe people don't. Uh, I'm not sure what the numbers are for, for Kolsch submissions as far as uh, that's one that it's good, fresh, and it's it's not one that, that ages very well. So, right. you know, uh, I don't know necessarily if people are putting as many of those into competitions or uh, – uh, or just I'm not judging them. Okay. So okay. It's not when you come across as much, but I'd love to. I have a lot of questions on this front, so let's hit pause right here, and, and we'll just dive right into the uh, discussion about uh, beer competitions. Sure. This is segment number three. We're uh, talking about uh, beer competitions. As we mentioned at the uh, at the start of the show, Kevin's calendar is currently filled to the brim with uh, competitions that uh, that are uh, upcoming. This is really kind of the uh, the big big season for beer competitions, as it, as it all oh. seems to all land within about a two month time frame. Spring is the time. Yeah. Yeah, we just got done with our uh, discussion about uh, Kolsch, and uh, Kevin just brought up that uh, that he has never been, uh, uh, he's not in his tenure so far uh, been assigned to a Kolsch category, but he brought up an interesting point about uh, about the uh, check boxes and that uh, any uh, any judge that doesn't uh, check off boxes <laughs> ends up getting uh, getting segmented, uh, or I I guess um, I guess. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, boxed in yeah. to uh, to a certain uh, a certain category that uh, that people actively avoid. Now, the interesting point about about that is because uh, one of those categories you mentioned is the smoked category, mm-hmm. and I have a smoked beer that I will be submitting to two competitions this year. And I am I admit that I am uh, I have. Uh, um, I have some uh, I have some anxious points of this because you know I've I obviously have no idea what I'm going to be you know up against or right. kind of how you how you judge something like that. Well, so. people won't sign up to judge a style that they can't stand. That's the thing. It's like right. when I don't check any boxes, it's because I appreciate a good smoked beer, um, but it is a very polarizing style. It's one of those that uh, you either you either like them or you don't. Uh, there's no real in between on on smoked beers, and some people just don't appreciate that flavor in in any beer. Um, it could be like a world class example, uh, but they're just not going to like it. So those people are going to sign up. Typically, you know, if if they uh, when they go to register as a judge, those people are going to sign up and say, "No, take me out of that category." Like for example, we have uh, uh, some local competitions coming up and i've said for all of them that i don't want to judge uh this time was the the, one of the only times that i checked uh the boxes because uh and it's not because i dislike these styles but i said i don't want to judge the irish styles reason for that you have a beer that you're submitting well no that um i'm actually not going to submit into that this year but uh i just i know that there's a lot of my friends uh in our brew club that are going to be putting those because we're having a, a a club competition with Irish Red mm-hmm. and uh, and the, Irish, time, the dry timing Irish is, stout, is right around the same time. Where I too, know yeah. that it's going to be loaded, full of people. So it's like one of those. I don't want to bias myself and say, "Hey, wait a minute. I feel like I've had this one at a meeting before. I bet this is 
so and so. I bet this is Jason's beer, you know. And then you 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 run into this whole like kind of because really we don't see. Uh, we never see any names. It's this is entry number one five seven. Here's the category. It's a it's a dry Irish stout. And uh, if there's any kind of extra stuff that the brewer wanted you to know before you taste it, like uh, I had this dry this extra dry or uh, Irish dry stout, and I added uh, Andy's mints to it. I don't know, whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever they they've whatever kind of weird stuff or that they've done that they we need. That's all we know. Right. Right. But I just, you know, just personally, I know that coming into it, I'm going to have so many people that I know that are going to be entering those styles that I said, I better sit this one out. That's make, so. that's that makes, makes perfect sense. And I, I would probably do the same thing in that. Right. It's just an ethics thing. thing, you know. And so but typically I won't discredit. I won't say that I won't do it because of I don't like the style. Yeah. I'll, I'll try any style. What are the other um Real poly, polarizing categories among bigger competitions, such as the two in March. One hundred percent sours. So sours. I was hoping that would come up because I have I have some opinions on sours myself. And and I mean, if you want to talk about love it or hate it, sours are definitely in that category. Is that um, nobody seems to be kind of on the fence about that? Either people will be like, "Ugh, I can't stand them." And, and, you know, there's different variants, you know, within sour beer as far as uh, the last time I judged it was at a competition in the city in Chicago where it was, I believe, what was the name of the category? It was uh, Wilds wilds and Sours or something like that, where it's like you got all different kinds of stuff. Like we had somebody who did uh, New England IPA with Brett added to it. And it's like, yeah, which is like something. And I and I and I said on the feedback, it's like I appreciate what you were trying to do here. I like the innovation, but do you I'm, say bread? Brett, Brett, like Brettanomyces, like Brett with a Brett oh. funky strain in the IPA. Yeah, and so it's like it's like well, I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but like a funky, like a funky kind of barnyard thing going on with all these hops. It was just kind of a weird combination, and so you'll get. Again, on the homebrew level, I mean, that's kind of just our nature, right? Is that everybody wants to kind of ex- experiment a little bit and say, oh, well, I wonder, you know, my uh, my neighbor two doors down, he grows this crazy fruit. I wonder if I could dump that in my beer and do this and that with it. And what, you know, or, oh, hey, there's something new at the grocery store. Can I make beer out of this? And I think it's just uh, our, our nature. But sometimes, and especially in the in the sour categories, Sometimes that stuff can get out of hand pretty quickly because if someone's tried to use things with wild yeast in it, wild yeast can go mm-hmm. one way or the other. They're not right. always delicious. <laughs> uh, you know, th- there's there's been some wild yeast captures out there that are that are great with beer, but there's others that you know maybe the homebrewer said, "Well, I got a, I've got a an apple tree in the backyard. And I'm going to try and get some yeast from where these apples are and." It just kind of comes off as something you don't want to drink, but they're going to put it into they're going to put it into the competition anyway and get some feedback on it. Uh, so it's kind of our job to go in there and evaluate it and tell them, hey, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't know if I'd do that again. But there's I've had some great beers in that category too. Here's my here's my initial reaction when the when the sour beer thing first took off, which I think was about a year to two years ago. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. My initial thought, and I really stood, I, I still, for the most part, stay relatively close to this even now, 
what is a sour beer? A beer that's gone bad. <laughs> that's I mean yeah, and I, and I and I can't break myself away from that. I would ne- I mean I, that would never be my first choice going to a bar to order a sour beer. See, Ever. and I and I love it. I'm a huge sour beer head. Like wow. uh, usually, okay. like my if I'm looking at a tap list, and I find that there's a good sour on tap, um, usually that's one of my first picks. Is like, ooh, they've got a sour from so and so, you know, or that sort of thing yeah. where I know I trust it. Um, and yeah, you're right. That's exactly what happened. Is that I I think that really it was one of those people were trying to make clean beers, uh, and that's how it all started. Was Ugh, what is this stuff floating on top of my beer? <laughs> well, let's taste it. D- d- well, uh, do you feel sick? No. Okay. Well, I, I feel pretty good. All right. Maybe maybe other people would like this. I don't think it was ever done intentionally. Um, but, you know, and the thing about sour beers is, like, that style has been around for centuries. You right. Know? I mean, as far as, like, Flanders Red and right. Nod Brune and, and, and different styles like that. But um, just locally here the sour thing has been catching on and it just doesn't always work you know i mean sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad well many of the commercial examples involve barrel aging absolutely you know, and a lot of them are barrel aged for a significant amount of time now most homebrew projects don't involve barrel aging right, so right yeah i mean i would i would imagine that you know in, in a homebrew competition setting that's going to bring in some yeah some very well, I, Let's say unique, and I mean, and it's like if you want to talk about patience, the thing is, is that a traditional sour that's not been kettle soured. A kettle sour is like more of those, you know, more of like a uh, to use to use uh, lacto and 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 sour beer in the kettle. That's another one of those like life hack things that kind of came around because people didn't have that kind of time to turn around a, a traditional sour. Right. I mean, you're looking at if if even on a homebrew level, if you wanted to do uh, an oak-aged traditional sour, I mean, this would be a beer that you'd make and probably put it, you know, pitch pitch some kind of sour, funky yeast blend uh, into it or bottle dregs or whatever, and then it's probably parked in your basement for, I mean, upwards of a year, you know, 18 months, two years, um, and that's the thing is that most sours, it just takes so long to turn them around that I don't think they're as popular but the people who do it, uh, there's people out there that do them. I mean, I've had world-class home-brewed sours that I, I mean, I've told the people, hey, if you were making this commercially, I would buy bomber after bomber of this. So. Good point. So maybe uh, as, as we talk more about uh, competitions, let's maybe talk a little bit about your background, if that's okay. Sure. Now, you, uh, you've, you've completed the BJCP certification. I did. How, uh, can you talk about that process, how long it took, and what was kind of the initial appeal you know, to, to, uh, to uh, go, that, uh, go that route? Well, for me, uh, kind of the way that it started was um, I had a, a couple of friends that were into it. And I just, you know, one of those things, I'm just kind of looking online and uh, I'm pretty active in, in different homebrewing forums and I'm on homebrew talk and, and the homebrew uh, part of Reddit uh, and, and things like that. So I've read with people, internet people, you know, uh, talking about judging beers and and uh, how it can make your, you know, make you a better brewer also, which is kind of a nice little perk to it that I was interested in. But uh 
I, I guess it was just kind of from that. And then so what it was was I was looking for something locally where you could go. Um, actually, well, the first thing I did was because the first thing you have to do to start the process is you have to take an online test. And I went and uh, paid for the online test to take it and got blown out of the water. Like I had no clue what I was doing. Like, What do they um, ask on that? Oh, I mean, you name it. It's like uh, mostly style-based. It's, it's uh, mostly all the stuff that's covered on the BJCP guidelines. So uh, they give you – it's a timed test, and um, y- you have to know – boy, uh, which of these following styles, you know, check all that apply. Which of these following styles are typically brewed by a decoction mash? Do, 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 do. You know, like you have to know like all of these things like right now. Okay. You can come back to them, but, you know, within a certain amount of – and I got like a horrible score my first time. So I was like, oh, man, well, this is maybe odd. I don't think it's something that I'm interested in. I would imagine everybody does. I well, mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, and they take, say take that most – a cold exam like that? Right. And I, you know, and I had just, you know, thumbed through it. I thought, well, maybe I know enough about beer where, hey, you know, I like beer. I could probably do that. And, and so, of course, I got crushed the first time that I took the test. Uh, but then I emailed around uh, to some mutual friends that I had, and I found out that there was a uh, a group, and it's like a group study kind of thing for the BJCP exam that would meet monthly uh, in and around Chicagoland. And the guy who puts it on is um, a nationally ranked judge. Uh, it's Steve McKenna, and he's like one of the, the nicest guys in the world. He's such a cool guy. I'd love to have him on the show one of these days. But uh, awesome. Yeah, and, and he takes you and, and goes through, like, okay, um, February session, we're going to do German styles. And he has all these, like, and so it's kind of like a, you pay one, you pay one uh, time at the very beginning, and, and Again, you know, I know there's there's already a, a waiting list for him, so it's kind of hard to get into that. And I was on a waiting list for about a year before I got started with it. But uh, he goes around and you, you taste commercial examples and he explains what it's about. And, and that was what I did to prepare for it. I know there's other ways to do it, too. There's some online stuff that you can look into. And, and uh, I know that a lot of um, they're actually starting to do some classes locally that that you can take that uh i just saw the other day um his name's marty i'm not sure about how to pronounce his last name natural natural i'm not sure but he uh wrote the homebrewing for dummies book and he lives here locally in chicagoland and i know that he's putting on some uh some some classes for bjcp study that sort of thing but anyway so long story short i met at a monthly group and we would go around all different places in chicagoland and uh, do different things with, with beer judging and evaluating and we would have dosed beers where you could try okay try to pick out what's different about this one what are you tasting oh I'm getting microwave popcorn butter on this one oh that's diacetyl and here's how that's produced and here's how you can tell people so it, is that required no but I mean when I went to take the test the next time it was a breeze it was like oh well I've had all this stuff before Yeah. You know? um, so yeah, so there's an online test, and then there's a tasting exam where you get X amount of beers, and you have to taste them in a certain amount of time and score them. And then your scores are compared with national rank judges, and it's, well, how they do compared to the experts, right? But there's no specific, okay, go to Joliet Junior College and take this class and do-do-do-do. It's just the way that I went about it. So I felt prepared Okay. when okay. I got certified. 
So the amount of time between when you took that initial exam to the uh, point where you became certified, how, how much time had, uh, had lapsed? <sighs> initial exam that I failed? Yeah. Oh, boy, about a year and a half. About a year and a half. Okay, a year all right. Half, yeah. Now, are there certain levels of certification? There are. Okay. Um, so when you first uh, pass your test, you are um, a provision. Well, you start as a provisional BJCP judge, so they'll let you go in and judge competitions as you're learning. Such as the ones here in this area? Right, okay. right. And so those, they'll pair you typically with people with more experience so that you can kind of see how things run. Um, and then um, where, where I'm at now is that I'm a certified BJCP judge, which means that you have X amount of, of judging points under your belt. And so that is, you know, I'm an official beer judge now, you know. Um, but there are a national rank where you get X amount of um, a, a certain hot, like a higher score on the written portion and then, um, no, the higher score on the tasting portion and then you take a writ- written portion and you can become nationally certified. And I mean, it even goes up to like grandmaster beer judge and there's really only like five or six of them in the country. So, but we do have one locally here in Chicago that does run his own, uh, his own competition basically. Grandmaster beer judge. Grandmaster beer judge. I mean, and that's the type of level where, I mean, I'm sure, you know, not that it's something that, that I'd be interested in. I mean, it's uh, it's a hobby for me. I'm sure that if someone were a, a grandmaster beer judge and uh, somebody ran a brewery and, I mean, they would be willing, I would imagine, to, you know, compensate someone to come in and do sensory analysis on their beer and say, okay, look, guys, you know, I'm getting way too much diacetyl in this beer or have you looked at this party i mean because that's uh you know somebody with a really highly refined palate i don't know if i'll ever get to that level but i think you're right though and i would think anybody that's i mean if you're one of five to six people in the country that achieve that level i would think to you know understand those flavor notes so specifically it seems very fitting that you'd be making a living off of that doing exactly what you're describing well and i would imagine most of those people um, it's kind of past uh, hobby for them, and right, you know, like a, right. like a Gordon Strong. I mean, he goes around and authors books, and I'm sure that he's paid to speak places, and yeah. uh, they'll bring him into conferences. And okay, you know, here's my speaking fee to come talk to your homebrew club, and uh, you know, he's he's at that level where he could travel around and and discuss beer, and and people would. I mean, I'm sure he goes all over the world doing it. Speaking of that. I was uh, I, w- I was thought- thinking about this during the first segment when you were talking about Hop Slam, and that Hop Slam, of course, is made by Bells. And the first beer competition that I ever went to was one here in this area. I want to say it was three years ago, and I've gone to this same competition every year since. The first time I was at that competition, the keynote speaker there was uh, a member of the Bells family. Oh, uh, was it Larry Bell or? I think so. His daughter, I believe, runs it now. Okay. Um, okay. And I don't know her first name. Yeah. But. Oh, I, I, I wish I remember the first name, but I'm pretty sure it was it was Larry, and Larry had such a wealth of knowledge, and I took I took so much away from hearing him talk, and and honestly, I mean, because not everybody who submits beers to competitions goes to award ceremonies and not a lot not all the competitions have a keynote speaker and share knowledge to the degree that uh, that this one does 
But I was so glad to be there for this. I mean, it was really a privilege hearing him talk. Yeah, and uh, I believe it's the Drunk Monk competition that's coming up. They have um, the the head brewer of Founders that's coming down to speak for that during the during the um, award ceremony. So I, that I can't wait awesome. to check that out. I'm, I was already planning on going to that. Now I'm even more excited to be there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Founders obviously rarely does not come up on this show. And for good reason. Founders has one of the gold standard breweries here in the Midwest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Trivia? What else about competition? Oh, oh. yeah. No, we'll, we'll get to trivia. Okay. Um, let's, um, let's maybe give some advice for prospective home brewers who are, uh, who are maybe looking into submitting their first beer into a competition. Um, my, my first word of advice um, would be... I'll put this in two ways. Number one, submit for what you've made for what your beer is, not necessarily what the beer was that you made during brew day. That's number one. And second of all, a beer competition is not a setting where creative creativity is rewarded. Both those fair statements? Uh, yes and no. I, I think a certain amount of creativity is good. Um, well, Creativity is good, certainly if you're try if you want to make inventive beers. My the, the reason that I say that, and, and I've gotten burned on this, you know, in my own experience. Um, a beer competition is a setting where you will always be judged solely on the BJCP guidelines for that exact category. That's true. That is true. So, uh, and, and those are usually, you know within such a limited scope that you know any deviation from that you're going to get dinged and and that being said i will say that they do have um other categories that are there for that reason that are a catch-all uh like for example 30a the the spice spice vegetable beer that i was talking about yeah that's that's your okay well i made a sweet stout but this it's not a sweet stout because in in also in my sweet stout I've got dill pickles and <laughs> and uh I want to meet know, that person who, and, who put uh, dill pickles in a stout medium rare ribeye I threw in there in the secondary <laughs> and you know all that sort of thing that's the crazy stuff and and there there are spots there for the for the crazy and and I think that's the spirit of homebrewing right is that a lot of these uh kind of wild recipes that you that that people will buy now uh started in someone's garage somewhere right yeah i think it's also uh to your point i think it's very important to learn that hey style guidelines are there for a purpose and that and that people who come into well you know a brewery come into your garage or whatever wherever it is that you're serving the beer you made and you tell them hey this is my new pale ale i made you know well can i what can i expect from that when you walk in right right uh, versus saying, hey, this is my pale ale I made. And then, what is this? Well, I forgot to tell you that, you know, I put in, uh, you know, I, I put in some some cinnamon and some red peppers and uh, a little cottage cheese in there, you know, that sort of thing, you know, the, the crazy stuff that people do. But, right. Um, but, yes, definitely in a competition. If you say that it's in that style, read those style guidelines and stay within that style because you will get dinged. It's probably good advice too, um, to keep those style guidelines in mind from the very beginning to the point that you're building your recipe and all throughout your brew day also. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. 
what other whatever other valuable advice would you would you want to throw out? My advice for people is if you're a home brewer and you um, are thinking about entering your beer into a competition, is just do it right because like here here's the issue is that a lot of people will. I'll tell them, well, I'm a certified. Oh, you do those beer competitions, like you know, they just don't see the, they don't see the the appeal to it. And and what what I would tell people is, is that okay, look, so you may be somebody who, well, I make beer, and my neighbor comes over and he tells me it's really good, he loves it, and uh, my my brother-in-law comes over and and you know he comes over every Saturday and drinks the beer that I make and he thinks it's awesome, but you know what, you know, a lot of times. Think about when you've been over to, you know, just to, over to dinner at someone's house and they say, you know, oh, here's my chili or whatever, you know, that you're that you're whatever meal you're having with them. And you, you'll sit down and of course you're going to tell that person, well, yeah, this is really good. You know, you, this is one of the best chilies I've ever had. Sir. That's a good point. That's a, you know, because that's a very good point. Free beer tastes better. Right. And so <laughs> anyone I mean, we can all attest to that. Right. I mean, if you get a free beer, it's delicious. So but the thing is, is that are you really getting. Uh, unbiased, honest feedback about what you're doing, and and by people who have been trained to identify things that are specific to uh, off parts of the process in brewing. Where, ooh boy, this guy fermented this way too hot, you know. And and we can put that on a piece of paper for you and say, hey, um, it's not about your feelings, and it's not trying to you know make people feel bad or whatever. But yeah. it's constructive criticism that you're not going to get from other places, right? And and so I think it's a good thing for people who have, I mean, and a lot. And you know what? Hey, if you're happy, you love the beer that you brew, and people come over and and they seem happy with it, and you're, I mean, that's fine too, you know, and that's a great part of the hobby. But I think people who are always trying to kind of like me, I'm always trying to kind of examine different parts of my process as a brewer and say, well, you know, I just don't think that uh, I think I need to make bigger yeast starters. I don't know something, for example. Right. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you do competitions for, because you're going to get somebody that's non-biased. They only know you as a number uh, that know what the base style you're trying to make is supposed to taste like. They're going to look at it from the same kind of evaluation standards as everyone at the table will sit there and read the BJCP standards and say, okay, this person said they're going to make a dry Irish stout. So, um, here's what it should be like. And, and then they'll talk and compare notes and say, well, what should we tell them? And, and, and a lot of times, uh, I know as a judge, we'll always try to remember that, Hey, you know, people paid good money to have these beers evaluated. And so it's like, you want to make sure that you give them something, Besides, hey, this beer is pretty good. You know, I mean, that's that's a terrible. And, you know, unfortunately, there has been a handful of people, I'm sure, that have gotten things back from competitions that are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but f- mo- for the most part, you're looking at if you bring your beer into a competition, you're going to get something that you might not get from your neighbor. I think a lot of especially young home brewers get a rude awakening with that because and I think you illustrated it very well. There's a lot of people that share their homebrews, homebrewed beers with people they know, friends that come over to the house and get, you know, very positive feedback, you know, in the, in the context that you were saying about, hey, you know, free, you know, free beer is always great. In a competition, you're being judged on very specific guidelines, and that's not always going to duplicate over to, you know, what your, your neighbor who came over you right. know, said about it. Right, and, and you know, again— don't get me wrong. Uh, anyone who 
has ever offered me some of their beer i've never you know i've never said oh well what's wrong you know hey what's going on with this and i mean you know i've always been polite to anybody but in the judging setting uh people paid money to have those beers come in and be evaluated by someone that's considered a professional that can offer uh ways to make them a better brewer uh, but I would never have someone like uh, we're part of the same homebrew club. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had anyone pour a beer for me where I'm like, oh, this is God awful. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't yeah. say that. It's like, uh, you know, you'll ask questions about the beer. Oh, well, hey, uh, how long did you ferment this for? And, and, you know, that sort of thing, like technical things. But nobody's ever going to tell you to your face. I mean, unless it's like horrible or, you know what I'm saying? But nobody's ever going to tell you to your face, like, hey, I think this beer has some off flavors in it. What's going on with this beer? You know, Um, at least I wouldn't. I mean, I'm a polite person, right? I think that's great advice in itself, the the way you just said that about any brewer who's submitting a beer to a competition is paying money to have their beer evaluated by a professional based on very specific settings. I think that's great advice in itself. And I think if you have that mentality, you know, going into when you're making your beer and you're doing everything throughout, I think I think your I think your performance is going to be all that much better because of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, really my advice more than anything is is just to do it. Uh the other thing I will say that we come across is that um you want to make sure that if you're submitting to these competitions that you have a very standard bottle uh you don't do anything too crazy as far as uh i know that they have you know these uh kind of crazy looking belgian bottles and mm-hmm. swing top gross bottles that people put in and um we'll judge them for the most part they won't kick your beer out of competition but it does set your beer apart and uh we'll do some kind of some bias toward toward you know the the judges before they you know there's, so there's usually rules surrounding that too there they, they are say, they say regular amber bottles the right. caps need to be gold or silver and nothing else. Right. Uh, black is allowed to. Oh, okay. Um, but, I, I mean, you know, you'll typically will they kick you out of competition if you paid on PayPal for to get your beer evaluated? No, they're not going to do that. I mean, yeah. you'd have to be a real jerk to do that, right? But um, it does kind of raise some eyebrows. It's like, oh, here's our next bit. Whoa, what's that? What's that crazy <laughs> bottle? Or, you know, that sort of thing. So just kind of be aware of that. Um, and, again, um, if you put something funky in the beer, tell us about it and make sure that it's tasteable, right? Uh, if it's a peanut butter porter or something or a, a, a spiced uh, winter warmer or something like that, and you tell me that it's heavy on, uh, with with lots of cinnamon, that there's nothing worse than someone who has put in a beer and says lots of cinnamon or lots of vanilla and then we pour it and we're like you guys where's taste, the cinnamon do you guys taste any vanilla in this beer i don't get any at all you know <laughs> and then it's like you might have gotten a better score had you not have said that in the first place it's like i've had some beers that were great beers but then people say they have these extra things in them and it's like mm-hmm. well but they said they had mm-hmm. i don't know licorice in it and i don't get any licorice you guys I've, get I've any been, licorice i've been burned for that exact reason Right, right, and it's like so. It's like okay, you might have spent big bucks on it and put this this stuff in your beer, but it's like if you can't taste it, you just don't tell the judges that it's in there necessarily. Yeah, I had won at just a, a recent competition. I did pretty well with it, but I I put uh, maple syrup in the beer, and most of it fermented out. So I I didn't mention maple syrup at all. You know, I figure it's like if they get that, it's like one of those hey. 
I think I might get a little hint of maple syrup in this, but I wouldn't I wouldn't have told the judges that because if I say maple syrup, you're expecting big pancakes in a glass kind of flavor, and I, I knew that beer didn't have that. You know, I said it was a coffee stout, and it, the coffee was definitely up front, and it was bold. You know, you could tell it was a coffee stout, um, but I didn't mention the maple. I've just figured, well, if they pick up on maple, maybe they'll just think it's like, ooh, my refined palate has picked up some maple in the background of this beer it was there they didn't know that it was there but it was there but it's like you know it's a bonus kind of a thing yeah right and and being that i've i mean this this is not a um competition related question but being that i've never used maple syrup in a beer before is that is that all fermentable sugars or is that always going to leave something behind most of it is and um so it's long been kind of a, a, a point of, of debate in beer is oh, how to get okay. maple flavor across. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert because I said I just made that beer yeah. that didn't have a whole lot of maple in the finish. And um, I know a lot of people will add it to a cold keg because the, the cold temperature will inhibit yeah. fermentation yeah. Uh, yeah. and kind of drop the yeast out. I actually, with that beer, when I would pour it at home, would occasionally, if I really wanted that flavor across, because it was uh, it was kind of billed as a breakfast stout, like coffee, chocolate, you know, that sort of thing. I would actually take a little bit of uh, real maple syrup and just kind of throw it in the glass, and then pour the beer in the glass and 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 let it mix in there like that. And then, I mean, it was delicious like that. But uh, yeah, most of mine fermented out, so I, I don't know. I know some people will say, uh, I know that there's a an herb out there that's supposed to mimic. The flavor of maple, I haven't tried it. Gosh, I can't. Uh, Fenugreek, that's supposed to be a a maple flavor. Uh, And I know that there's a, they make these little Brewer's Best uh, flavor. It's like a flavor extract kind of thing that you can put in beer that's maple. But I haven't had a whole lot of luck with those. Most of the time when I've used those in beers, they kind of come across as being kind of fakey tasting. Okay. But... uh, I don't know. If someone knows, hey, if somebody has a good uh, maple beer tip and you'd like to send that in on Facebook, a <laughs> uh, nice place to brew, holler at either of us. I'd love to hear it. Because oh, that'd be great. I've tried really hard to get maple across, and it's yeah. a tough one. We'll Skype you in on the show. We'll we'll go over the idea in detail. We'll cover, cover it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that'd be great. So with this competition season upcoming, um, outside of judging, what uh, what uh, what beers are you submitting to recent competitions, or do you have anything in the works that's going to be submitted also? Well, and again, uh, we we say that uh, some of our tips are are tips from the semi pros, and and I am admittedly a semi pro, uh, and and I don't know if all the beers that I make would be uh, something that I would charge someone money for. I had made a dry Irish stout that I don't think is up to uh, is up to the standards where I'm going to put it into a competition because I found it had a lot of astringency in it. Uh, and again, it's something that you can kind of deal with when you got a lot of roasted grains in a in a recipe. So yeah, that one's just going to sit in my kegerator, and hopefully, I can age some of the some of the bitterness out of it. But it's not going into competition. So okay, um, what I decided to do was I'm going to do a really quick turnaround uh, American wheat. Because, uh, and again, you know, a little uh, pointer from what I found, that's one of the styles that um, a low-gravity American wheat, you can turn that around within two, three weeks and have a really great, fresh, delicious beer uh, that you can share with people. And so I'm going to make one real quick, and 
uh, pop that into those competitions because the dry Irish stout didn't pan out. So. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I have the smoked beer that I talked about earlier in the show, and I also have a double IPA, which the keg is getting noticeably low in that. So I think uh, I think its time is coming. Um, I, I'm very pleased with how they came out, and I, I guess it'll uh, it'll uh, ca- cap off the last of that beer very well. Just seeing what uh, what beer judges think of it. Fingers crossed. I got there you high go. Ups. Yeah. There you go. So uh, so you bottle from the keg, Jason? Yes, I do. Awesome. Do you have like a counter pressure filler? Or? I've got the uh, Blickman beer gun. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, yeah. Those, are, those are great. It is a great tool. So, uh, I, I, so I'm looking here, and I'm going to give uh, listeners just kind of a little preview of all the, yeah. the stuff that we have coming up. Um, there, I guess the first one uh, coming up here would be... The uh, Drunk Monk Challenge, which is at the Roundhouse in Aurora. Uh, and actually, well, it's I, I believe they're starting it on Wednesday in Hailstorm Brewing in, in Tenley. The judging, right? The judging, yeah. right. Um, but uh, I'm doing it on Saturday the 10th. And that's when the award ceremony is. And there's, yeah, that's an all-day thing. Uh, there's judging all morning uh, into the afternoon, and then there's a, an, a, an award presentation after that. So, uh, And that's on March 10th. Let's see, coming up a couple weeks later there, on March 24th, we have the Charlie Orr Memorial Challenge, which is put on by Boss, um, which is Brewers of South Suburbia. Uh, and that one is actually i i take that back i believe the beginning part of that competition is going to be held at hailstorm and tenley and then uh the rest of the the competition is at giovanni's in crest hill yep uh so and that is on the 24th and on the bigger scale the first round of the national homebrew conference uh the, the national round is at uh, Nevins in Plainfield, and that starts on Wednesday, April 18th, and goes through to Saturday the 21st. So, um, and again, those are for people who are American Homebrew Association registered people. You put in, and um, they have it's kind of like a playoffs it's almost like a like a march madness of beer you know nice. you go on from if if you get top three in any of your and it's a big one it is definitely by far the biggest competition all year um i mean we were judging beers that were sent in from kentucky wisconsin i mean people will ship mostly for for a lot of these because it's the closest location but uh you move on to uh being in the national homebrew championships and some people have to rebrew uh recipes for those but uh and then that goes into the national conference and uh you know you go on for fame and fame and fortune in the national competition so a national competition is taking place here in chicagoland in plainfield well, the, the first the, the first, first round, the, the Midwest yeah. round is. Yeah. I admit I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time. That's so interesting and so cool. Yeah. yeah. And, I and mean, so, I mean, one of the perks, I guess they would say, of, of, of membership to American Homebrew Association is that. I got you, my card this month. There you go. So you get access to all those recipes that uh, have won gold through the years. So, you know, it's kind of like a good base, tried and true. Uh, this is a, a gold winning recipe, that sort of thing. Um, and I know that there's some really huge prizes for those guys who are, who are uh, those people who are able to win that. Yeah. So um, very cool. Yeah. Kind of neat. Being that I've been a American Homebrewer Association member for all of two weeks, 
I, I feel like I have a lot to learn as far as the overall perks of my membership. Um, but I'm starting to see some really valuable information come my way. Uh, I, f- I feel like on a future episode, I'm going to want to talk about this in, in more detail. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's worth it. I I, I love it. And, and it's not a, not expensive either. No, it's not bad at all. And a lot of times they get all kinds of free stuff. You know, I mean, it's like if you're if you're. Uh, if you use that stuff, it ends up paying for itself. I mean, yeah. uh, you get 10% off at a lot of places, and um, there's all kinds of little perks to it. You know, it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the first uh, pieces of uh, information that came my way right after I became a member of American Homebrewer Association was the announcement of the retirement of Charlie Papazian. What a legend. I know. I, I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the original, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, what a what a uh, landmark event for the association to you know have its founder and you know somebody who's contributed so much to the homebrewing community as Charlie has, you know, just you know hang it up after you know I want to say forty plus years. Yeah, I want to say he's close to seventy years old, and you know, yeah, uh, man, right around just there. What a yeah, what a I don't I don't think that homebrewing would be anywhere near where it is now without him. Without question, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, he's. I mean, think about what it was 40 years ago, you know, j- just the um, the setting of craft beer and homebrewing and what it is now. He's, I mean, he's had an undeniable impact, you know, on the whole growth of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So hats off to you, Mr. Papazian. Hope you enjoy your retirement. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> that was segment number three, tips from the semi-pros. And uh, we got, I got two other things to cover before we uh, cap off today's episode. I have a trivia question. Kevin. Yes, sir. On April 21st, 1855, this city's first civil disturbance occurred because of, you guessed it, alcohol. Oh, man. Newly elected mayor Levi Boone increased the fee for liquor licenses and enforced an ordinance requiring taverns and saloons to be closed on Sundays. So in the mid, so let's put a setting around this. In the mid-1800s, you know, where workdays commonly are six days a week, to close all bars and taverns on a Sunday is kind of a big deal. Well, sure. When tavern owners were arrested for noncompliance for opening their beers on sun, or opening their bars and in breweries and settings on Sundays, armed Germans attempted to rescue the prisoners <laughs> from the courthouse. <laughs> Mayor Boone ordered a nearby drawbridge raised until he had more than 200 policemen ready to face yet more protesters flocking towards downtown. The bridge was then lowered and shooting ensued. One person was killed and 60 people were arrested. So, the question is, what city did this take place in? Well, you know, the the, the Beastie Boys said it best. you got to fight for your right to party. <laughs> well uh, said. I, I would say... Because there's four choices oh, okay. here. Okay, is it A, Philadelphia, B, Chicago, C, St. Louis, or B, or no, or D, Boston? You know, funny, without seeing the choices, my initial thought that popped up into my head was that this just seems like, and I don't know what basis I have for this, Just this just seems like a Boston kind of story to me. Uh, not sure why, you know, maybe it goes back to the tea party, people throwing, throwing the tea in the harbor and, and getting riled up. I mean, if you're going to get that fired up about tea, you would think that alcohol would really ruffle some feathers. So <laughs> my guess is going to be D, Boston. Okay. The answer is B, Chicago. Oh, Our man. own hometown, Chicago, lays claim to the event referred to as the Lager Beer Riot of, ni- of 1855. 
Wow. And so let's put some more context around it. Uh, Chicago has, uh, in, in the in the 19th century, had a very uh, had a very significant influx of immigrants from Germany and from Ireland. And many of those uh, immigrants were working class people who were subject to the you know six day work week that uh, that was talked about, and that being that Germany and Ireland are both you know heavy you know you know beer drinking cultures, the idea that beers would be, uh, bars and breweries would be closed on Sundays was a big deal, and they thought enough of it that there was an uprising for it right here in our in our home city, and you know. Isn't it nice that in 2018 that, um, you know, all of those archaic uh, beer laws are are off the books? But actually, guess what? So They're not true. Because, uh, <laughs> because uh, most recently here, um, they just uh, recently reapproved the sales of beer on Sundays in Indiana, which you could not <laughs> go into a store and buy a beer on a Sunday in Indiana until just recently here. I was just looking this up uh, here on the, the Indy Star. It was um, they, they finally had the Indiana Senate Committee. Uh, this was in, in January, so just last month. Uh, they finally approved a measure allowing carry-out Sunday alcohol sales. So isn't that crazy that in 2018, still, uh, you know, people uh, try to regulate what people want to imbibe? Here's here's an equally crazy story along those exact same lines. When you talk about uh, about crazy alcohol laws still in effect, um, my, my parents, my mom and dad, live in Georgia. And... Let me tell you something crazy about Georgia law. This finally got overturned within the last year. Up until the last year, you could not operate a regular tap room at a brewery like we're used to here in Illinois. You could not walk into a tap room, order one of the beers, and sit down and have a glass, nor could you buy a bottle and just and take it off a premise. Because, I mean, the, the distributor laws in Georgia were so strong that they lobbied to the point that, you know, there was no way for anybody to acquire any craft beer of any type unless it was going through a distributor from it, the brewery. It really is crazy. And, and you know, going back to being an, an AHA member, uh, I think that nowadays the AHA is more just kind of a connection to uh, people who have the same hobby and 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 all of this stuff but for a number of years the AHA existed because it was a lobbying uh body for people to be able to just have the right to brew beer in their homes yes um and and so it just blows my mind you know as far as what uh some of these kind of just archaic things that have been on the books through the years yeah yeah you you think in in time you know they're all just going to tumble down and and it feels like they are progressively, but you know you know some some places are doing so at a faster rate than others. Right, exactly. So the one thing that Georgia has had, and there was the one loophole in the law up until just recently, you could have a beer in a tap room as long as you paid to take a tour of the brewery. That was the oh, okay. one legal way that you could sit in a bar, in, not in a bar, in a brewery, and have some of its huh. own beer there on site. So I'd imagine they'd be like, all right, do you want the the real tour or the, okay, here's yes, the bar. exactly. Walk around back. Yeah. Okay, take a look. All right, We're now, here's your We're only doing this because we have to because yeah, exactly. that's what the law, the exactly. law mandates. So, oh, so. And I know that there's been a lot of kind of crazy things on the books about ABV that as long as you stay under like oh. some magic number, <laughs> if you stay under different. 5%, then you'll be able to produce this amount, you know, this amount of beer or 
or that sort of thing. But it just it just blows my mind. We may know? want to have a segment in a future show about just that. Agreed. Just the absolutely obscene alcohol laws that are still in effect today. Oh, absolutely. Let's, you know what? Let's work on that. Yeah, I definitely. think that would, that would make a definitely. great a great episode. I got one other thing that uh, that I wanted to bring up before we close out the show. Um, this I want to I want to make mention of a story uh, from NPR, and we will post the link on our Facebook page. By the way, if you haven't uh, liked our Facebook page, um, take us uh, take a look at us at at uh, Nice Place to Brew on Facebook. And and we've both uh, you know we've officially got both of our handsome mugs up there. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> now I will say on the onset that I have a bit of a love hate relationship with NPR. You know they do a lot of things extremely well, and they're a little bit biased and a little bit. You know, sure, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, anyways. But I found a story this through do, through doing some research yesterday that I absolutely fell in love with, and I just feel the need to. Uh, I feel like this show. Uh, I feel like it should have a presence here on this show today. So I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of this, and then we'll post the link to the full article. So this is a story that comes from Alexandria, Virginia, which, if you don't know where that is, it's just outside Washington D.C. So here's the top of the article. Not far from the Smithsonian, this entire cycle is, is happening in one place. Outside the Portner Brew House in Alexandria, Virginia, a sign says, established 1865, re-established in 2012. The company was founded by Robert Portner, a German immigrant. At its peak, the company was the biggest employer in the city. More than 600 people worked for Portner, churning out more than 6 million bottles of beer every year. Portner's company was forced to close during Prohibition in 1916. But a century later, sisters Catherine and Margaret Portner, two of his great-great-granddaughters, reopened the brewery just a few miles from its original site. I love that. That's awesome. 96 years after its closing and the ancestors of the founder, you know, thought enough of, of what he did that they reopened the beer. Yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I think a lot of times um, your breweries now tend to be kind of set up in some of these cool old historical kind of locations. I know that. So true. Yeah. Uh, locally, like uh, uh, Elder Brewing Company, which is an, another JBG member gone legit. Yeah. I know that he got that space uh, there in Joliet from. From I believe it's his grandpa. Oh, I and, didn't know uh, that. Yeah, I mean, so it's like a family kind of been passed down, and and uh, he decided, well, I'm going to open a brewery there, and it's just kind of neat to have like a piece of history, you yeah. know, as you're sitting there drinking. And oh um, man, what a great story that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I I, I felt uh, I mean I thought that story was just so great. I I really wanted to wanted to make mention of that here on the show. So again, we'll post it. Take a look. Like Sounds it. good. Yeah. All right, as we uh, close off this show. We raise a glass and say, it takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.